On this episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with Hillel Solo about serverless security in the real world. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 11. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Hillel Solo. Hi, Hillel. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks so much. It's a real honor to be here. So you're the co-founder and CTO at Protego. So why don't you tell all of our listeners a little bit about your background and what Protego is up to? Sure. Thanks. So uh, Protego is a security company focused on serverless security. We've been around for a couple of years. Uh, Prior to that, I spent about 20 years in security at companies like Cisco and various other companies. And uh, we really started Protego because we saw that uh, serverless and cloud native uh, was going to really usher in a wave of, of changes in how we deploy applications and build applications. And that was really going to upend a lot of what we do in security. And so we really focused on trying to ground up, understand what is it about serverless and cloud native applications that changes? What's the best way to secure them? What do people worry about? And how do we help them solve those problems? Awesome. So I wanted to talk to you about serverless security in the real world. And by that, I mean the things that we are actually seeing, because I think that there's a lot of misinformation that is out there. And I know there's a lot of security companies starting to focus on serverless and cloud native. And every once in a while, we hear about these security breaches in the news. So I think that this is just a good opportunity for us to talk about what we really have to worry about. I mean, obviously, we 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 want to have a good security posture for whatever we do in the cloud. But I think maybe we could start by discussing a recent sort of high profile or highly publicized successful attack, like with Capital One, for example. So I know this wasn't serverless related, but what are your what are your overall thoughts on that attack? Does that scare people when they see something like the Capital One thing? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think Capital One's done a really great job of leaning into the cloud and taking advantage, not just from a development and deployment perspective, but for a security perspective of everything the cloud can offer. Uh, so it's, it's a bit unfortunate now that they're going to get hit on the head here. I don't think it's a result of them moving to the cloud. And to a large degree, this kind of attack that we're looking at is kind of similar to the other kinds of, you know, Equifax attacks in some ways. You know, it's 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 some misconfiguration and, and some, you know, access to an EC2 machine that then had access to some S3 buckets that shouldn't have had access. So those kinds of things, uh, you know, obviously they, they can happen across any kind of infrastructure. Uh, the fact that Capital One is leveraging, the you know, Amazon to do a lot of the... Uh, the securing of the infrastructure below what they're doing is great. Uh, it does highlight the fact that at the end of the day, though, we're all responsible for our own applications and Amazon says that, you know, day and night. And so for us to focus on the things that, you know, that we deploy our business logic, that that's really important. It's important, obviously, for Capital One. And I think, you know, they you know, do a great job of it for the most part. And here, obviously, they're going to have to improve. Uh, but I think for all of us, it's it's a lesson in how careful we need to be about application security and about how we're using the cloud. Uh, because just because Amazon is securing the underlying platform might lead us to believe that we don't have to deal with security, and it's obviously not true. Yeah, definitely. All right, so let's talk about the uh, the first aspect of this, because like I said earlier, I, I think there's uh, misinformation out there about what it means to be serverless and what your security posture becomes once you go serverless or or even just move to the cloud in general. Um, so so there's this concept of FUD, right? This is fear, uncertainty, and doubt um, that you tend to see a lot of people and companies using to maybe uh, exaggerate the risks. 
Um, and I know your team is great at sort of shutting down the FUD, right? You know, just giving people uh, real, honest answers, which is really refreshing. Um, so maybe we can jump into that and just give me your thoughts on how you feel about, you know, this idea of people scaring people by, uh, by spreading misinformation about the security of serverless. Yeah, I, I, look, I don't, I don't want to discount the value of fear. Uh, you know, I think if you're a security company, it's nice to be selling a product that solves a problem people are really, really worried about, and that's that's obviously important. But I think this notion of us becoming hysterical about things that aren't really issues uh, is something we need to avoid. And, and specifically for us, as we have looked at serverless and how it changes security, I think one thing is really clear: serverless is not less secure than other things. I think for you know, in a lot of ways. Serverless applications stand to be the most secure applications that organizations deploy for a bunch of interesting reasons. They, they do raise some interesting challenges in terms of, you know, where do I put the stuff that I used to run uh, on machines or the where do I put things that don't scale the way that I want them to scale in a serverless world uh, and things like that. And, and obviously they do create different types of opportunities for attackers. And they do change some of the ways attackers are moving. But overall, I mean, my, my strong belief is if, if you're making the move to serverless, you're going to get a net win on security. You just need to take advantage of a lot of what's out there. And for us, you know, and I, I'll talk a little bit later about what we do, but in Protego, a lot of what we focused on is, hey, what happens when you move to serverless and cloud native? What new opportunities are there? And how do we leverage those for security in a way that maybe the past was challenging? Yeah, and I think the other piece of that too is that you have developers that are now much closer to the stack. And I've, I've said this a million times, but uh, but this this always makes me a little bit nervous because there are some new things that a developer uh, might be responsible for when deploying and securing your application code in serverless, right? And, and and like you said, the infrastructure security provided by the cloud providers already gives you this great foundation. But but if you don't have those skill sets or uh, you're, you're just not used to implementing IAM policies because maybe they were handled by ops people or there were tools like WAFs and things like that, um, you know, that gets a little bit scary for me anyways when I see what some of the younger or junior developers do. Uh, and certainly that's part of their cloud learning experience. But but without proper controls in place, it, it does open up some risks. So uh, so let's talk a little bit more about what's different with serverless security versus more traditional security systems. Uh, and, and one of those things would be, you know, sort of speaking of IAM roles, um, this move to very, very small, fully managed compute units, uh, as opposed to the security of an entire machine or, or maybe even a container where you have full access to the execution environment. So uh, so what, what's the difference there? Yeah, Sure. So I think first, just to, to your earlier comment, uh, you know, and again, I have nothing against young developers. I, I'd like to think I'm still a young developer in some ways, although I don't think anybody else thinks that. Um, I think a couple of things have happened over the years. I think we spent a bit of time, you know, 10 years ago and 15 years ago, focusing on getting developers to be better about security. Uh, I think we took our, our foot off the gas a little bit on that. And over the past, you know, 10 years or so, I think a lot of what we've done in security is focus on trying to wrap up developers in an environment where they're kind of sandboxed from evil. So developers can write any stupid things they want. We've got scanners and WAFs and agents and all sorts of other things to try to secure them. And I think one of the things that you see in the move to serverless, and again, I don't think it's a serverless only thing, but I think it's a serverless more than anywhere else thing, is that sort of divide between security people and developers, it's not really tenable. And you know, in serverless, a lot of the security controls that you know that security used to own 
are now security controls that developers control, like configuring IAM roles and setting up VPCs and things like that. And so in a lot of ways, we've actually put more responsibility on developers, but we haven't necessarily empowered them in real ways to make security decisions. And at the same time, we haven't given security people a way to meaningfully understand and audit some of those things when they don't necessarily understand what the application does or what the code wants to do. So I think that's that's been a big change. And, and I think that's true across a lot of cloud applications, but it's just truer in serverless applications. You're kind of forced to reconcile that. The, the other thing uh, about serverless applications specifically that we like to talk about is the fact that developers have gone from you know an application that comprises 10 containers to one that comprises 150 functions you know, can create also to nightmares and testing and, and monitoring and, 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 you know, deployments and things like that. But for security, there's an interesting win there where you get to apply security policy, IAM roles, uh, runtime protection at a very fine grain level, you know, at a kind of a zero trust, uh, uh, you know, small perimeter level. And, and that that's, if you can do it right, if you do it at scale and automatically, that could potentially be a huge win really for, you know, mainly least privilege, reducing attack surface and reducing blast radius. You know, if something goes wrong, my developer left a backdoor uh, accidentally into a function, but now that function really can only do right to one particular table as opposed to, you know, in the old world where that gave an attacker a lot more capability. So I think that's an opportunity that is on the table. It is challenging to capitalize that, you know, on that, you know, like you said, there's less time, there's less gates between developers and running production code. And that means that, you know, how do we automate and capitalize on a lot of that value without trying to slow everybody down? That's the big challenge. Yeah. And and you mentioned this idea of developers running their code uh, in sandboxes. And, and, and when you put traditional tools like WAFs in front of incoming web traffic, obviously it inspects that and, and we hopefully take care of basic things like SQL injection and, uh, and, and cross-site scripting attacks and things like that. But um, but what about all these other events? Because that's one of the things that I always like to address, and, and I, I don't bring it up to scare people, but serverless certainly promotes event-driven architectures. And, and AWS Lambda has something like 90-plus event sources, plus custom events, um, and really only two of those, I, I think, would even look like traditional web traffic. So, uh, you know, WAFs aren't designed to understand these other types of events. Um, you know, so what are the WAF equivalents for these other events, or, or is this just about writing good code? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting to see the evolution, because I think if we go back about a year and a half, uh, you know, there, there were, there were, I think, 16 event types then, and, you know, not as many as there were today. But but it was still interesting to see that I would say 90% of what was going on was kind of API gateway and then CloudWatch, you know, timers. But over the past year and a half, I've seen a lot of evolution in terms of how applications are built. And people are really learning how to use uh, some of these triggers that are out there to build more interesting applications, applications that are more efficient, that bypass a lot of the bottlenecks that, you know, existed in the past by using, you know, things like uh, AWS IoT or AppSync or, or using, uh, you know, Kinesis to directly upload data. So a lot of those triggers are now out there. And you're right, uh, WAFs typically are somewhere between difficult and impossible to put in front of most of those things. Uh, again, that's true in non-serverless applications as well. It's just that the, the norm now is to build uh, some business logic that's triggered by some data coming in from one of these APIs that I can't necessarily put a WAF in front of. And so, yeah, we, we need to reconcile where are we putting security so that it's more agnostic to where things are coming in? Where are we putting security so it's not assuming that all the bad guys are outside this big perimeter that has one big front door and all the good guys are on the inside. And again, I think we should be assuming that for the rest of the cloud as well, but we just don't have a choice when it comes to serverless. Yeah, and and, and the other thing too, and I, I guess this would apply to the entire cloud infrastructure uh, or, or infrastructure as code really, um, is where it's very easy for you to spin up all these dev and staging environments uh, and you see developers and companies creating lots of functions um, and lots of versions of functions, API gateways uh, and things like that. 
Uh, but those are all out there and, and often never get cleaned up. And, and so is that a security risk in, in your assessment? Yeah, it's interesting because the rest of the world tries to decrease friction, right? That's what we're focused on. How do we do things with fewer barriers? And security kind of likes their friction. You know, we, we really enjoy a little bit of friction. The fact that there's friction means it's a little harder for a developer to do something. And maybe there's more things along the way that might prevent him from doing something silly. So the fact that we can now spin up machines instantly, we can you know deploy functions instantly. That's obviously great for productivity in a lot of ways, but it does make security a bit of a nightmare. Uh, and yeah, I think the move to serverless as a mindset, but also as a technology, I mean, the fact that you can literally go into the console in Lambda, hit create function and write some code, hit save, and that thing's in production. That's incredibly powerful, but it's a lot more scary than it is powerful in the real world. And so uh, what we see a lot is we see sprawl really quickly. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, the, you know, the, the last uh, um, protection from kind of, you know, resources you didn't need that were hanging out there in the cloud world was, was your CFO, was somebody at the end of the month going, our Amazon bill is what? Oh my God, let's, let's do an audit of that. And then let's, you know, what's that machine called Hillel test one, you know, running in Australia. Do we need that? And I'll go now. Yeah, probably not. It's called test. Uh, so thank God we paid 200 bucks a month for it because from a security perspective, somebody wants to care about it. Now you can throw functions and stacks and, and versions of old versions of functions and API gateways instantly. You pay virtually nothing for them unless they're being called. So from a developer's perspective, okay, I, I put some test stack up. What do you want? I put it up in US West 2, which is where we don't put our production applications. So it's easy to realize it's not production. And I tried something out and I didn't delete it. But from a security perspective, well, that's all callable. That's accessible. It's probably got very little error handling because you were just testing something out and it's it's open to the outside world and it's probably not going to go away unless we're really mindful about it. So yeah, I think uh, you know we see people go from zero Lambda to hundreds of Lambda where they really only need 13 or 14 Lambda functions in production you know, within the course of months. And a lot of what you need to focus on, whether it's through tools or honestly, whether it's just through good hygiene, is what's out there, what's deployed, why is it out there, do I need it, is it part of something important, can I prune prune everything, you know, it's really got to live Spartan, you know, in a Spartan way in the cloud. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think too that that when you start piling up all these old versions of functions and and you have all these old API gateways uh, that are just there for testing things, as as you mentioned, uh, I've seen this quite a bit uh, where people will publish an API gateway to a test function that does something like dumps a whole bunch of information that you probably shouldn't be dumping, uh, and, and security by obscurity only works for so long. So I I can definitely see how. Uh, all these shadow APIs uh, can can certainly open up some security holes. Um, you know, plus the other thing you mentioned too uh, about your Hillel test server in Australia. Um, you know, I get the higher bill um, can be somewhat beneficial from a security perspective, uh, but but even small resources can start to add up. So you know, I see this too where people will create something like a DynamoDB table. Uh, but you, you know they they won't use the on demand pricing, and then then all of a sudden uh, they've got a bunch of read and write units that they're they're getting charged for, uh, and you don't realize it because it's often spread across you know lots of services. Um, so I, I find that to be an interesting side effect as well, uh, uh, and pruning would certainly help there too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Kinesis is the killer. That's the one that really gets you. Yes, uh, yes, when you're paying for those shards. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about this idea we mentioned regarding real-world serverless or uh, serverless security in the real world. Um, and so you've obviously seen quite a bit of security stuff. Uh, you're a security guy. You run a security company. Um, so maybe we can push past all of these anecdotes uh, and, and discuss some some of the things that you're actually seeing happening out there. Yeah. It's, it's great. And it's really an opportunity before I even say anything else to say it's worth remembering that the people out there who are trying to attack our system, they're the same people who were out there before, whether they're, you know, 
personal people, you know, state actors, uh, you know, criminal actors, whatever it is, it's the same people. They may or may not even be aware that we've decided to build our application based on Lambda or Azure Functions or something. Uh, so th they want the same things. By and large, they're going to use a lot of the same technologies. They are starting to adapt a little bit to the fact that it's, you know, a serverless environment. They're starting to understand how serverless environments scale and how they can benefit from that, how they can do more brute forcing perhaps in certain cases than they might have been able to in the past without being detected. Uh, but but by and large, we're not seeing a huge shift in what are attackers uh, doing. I think from, from a, a defense perspective, from the things I care about perspective, we're definitely seeing that there are things, new things you need to focus on. You know, the, the, the whole debate between denial of service and denial of wallet, or as in, do I leverage the cloud to scale horizontally tremendously for me so I don't have to worry so much about being knocked over by a denial of service account, but then maybe I'll pay a tremendous amount of money at the end of the month? Or do I try to figure out, you know, what's my minimum concurrency I could set up and still service my customers and try to avoid paying through the nose? Those are interesting discussions that maybe weren't as relevant in the past uh, and are relevant now. But mostly, I think, uh, you know, from, from the outside, things are, are, are quite the same. Uh, I think denial of service in general, this is a category of attack that, you know, Broadly speaking, uh, we need we need to focus on a lot with applications. Uh, denial of service, not so much in the what if I get hit by a million requests at the same time. You know that's that's what Cloudflare is there for. That's what you know AWS Shield will help you with and things like that. But denial of service more in the what what happens when people exploit the business logic of my application to just make me consume resources. And you know you you can you can hit a login endpoint and consume a lot of Dynamo resources. And as you said. You know, in a lot of these cases where there isn't on-demand billing, we've got to set up a capacity. So we, you know, in, until Dynamo had on-demand, we needed to decide, you know, how many read units we set up for, for Dynamo. And if we were storing our, you know, hashed passwords in Dynamo for some reason and looking them up during login, then we needed to figure out, you know, what's the right capacity so we didn't get knocked over by that. But we've seen more complicated cases. And a lot of this has to do with architecture. I mean, we recently saw someone who got attacked. But that attack didn't just manifest in, hey, my stuff gets really busy. It manifested in, my stuff got really busy. My Kinesis uh, pipelines and analytics pipelines applications got full of all sorts of spurious data uh, part, that were part of the attack. Uh, that data wasn't getting uh, consumed or drained from those, uh, you know, th those uh, pipelines in the way that maybe they should have been or at the speed they should have been because of the way I'd structured my application. And th this customer was down for a couple of days until they could figure out how to properly you know, drain their, their their these attacks out of their system, and then figure out how to mitigate those things. So, a lot of the, the ways that people architect around these managed resources and these more complicated, more distributed architectures could be really important, not just for performance, but also for security. Yes, yes. And so that point about the design of the architecture, I, I think that is right on because I, I see this problem quite a bit, especially with uh, things like cascading failures. Um, so, so, so what are those trade-offs that we have to make? What do you feel is appropriate? Do we, do we want to continue to scale up to handle all these extra requests uh, if we do get some sort of flood? And, and, and like you said, Cloudflare or, uh, or something like AWS Shield will knock down the DDoS type attacks. But, but what about the more common ones, the ones where somebody's maybe trying to brute force your password form or flood a webhook endpoint or, or something like that? Where do we draw that line between... Uh, you know, letting it scale up and shutting people down. Yeah, it's 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 always an, an it's the eternal question in, in architecture in general, especially in cloud architecture. Uh, and when you factor in security, it becomes a little bit more complicated. Uh, I, I think obviously uh, the earlier you can know something is wrong and something should be ignored or discarded, the better, right? And so one of the one of the mistakes we often make with distributed architectures is we figure out that the 
the logical place for something to be checked is somewhere down the line. You know, Lambda function puts something into SQS, gets pulled out by another Lambda function that does some processing on it, then spins off a bunch three other Lambda functions. And, and one of those third Lambda, you know, that Lambda functions that are all the way down the, the, the ranks, they're the ones who are going to go, wait a minute, this, this request isn't signed properly, or this request doesn't match, uh, you know, the, the account ID it came from or something like that, because logically they have access to the data at that point, and that's great. Except that now you think about that from a security perspective, it took a long time and it consumed a lot of resources before you figured out that that request was something you'd actually like to ignore. So in some cases, figuring out uh, what's the earliest place that I can filter out bad data from good data, if I can recognize bad data, uh, how quickly can I can I do that? How can I avoid looking things up in a database before I know something's a problem? Those are going to be helpful. And obviously on the architecture side, you know, trying to make sure you're using resources in the cloud that scale really well, uh, resources that let you handle edge cases, you know, of, of, you know, crazy overflows or, you know, you know, lots of extra data inside your pipe. You know, how do you deal, how does, how do you deal with an SQS pipe uh, queue that's, that's full of, uh, you know, requests you don't want to handle uh, you know, how do you drain those? How are you going to handle that? So some of those are architecture decisions you have to make to make sure you're not scaling out too rapidly. You're not consuming all your resources, but at the same time, you can handle the that sort of massive scale that you want to handle. I mean, the whole point is to say, I build this application, you know, just as an anecdote, we have a customer uh, who's started with us last year. They had about a hundred million requests, you know, per month, uh, invocations per month on their Lambda infrastructure. They're at close to a billion now. They haven't changed their operations team. They haven't changed their code all that much. Uh, so, so they've really capitalized on the fact that you can use serverless to build things that just scale magically without having to worry about it. You want all that, but at the same time, you want to make sure your security uh, concerns are mitigated in that, you know, in that same system. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that point you mentioned about using a lot of resources uh, because you're you're just passing data through without inspecting it. Uh, you know, that that's another very interesting trend that I, I think can be quite a problem. Uh, but, but it's also, it's not, it's not impossible to protect against either. Uh, you know, if you're streaming something into Kinesis or you're putting something into an SQS queue, uh, there are ways for you to validate or verify. And, and it might go beyond just validating the signature too, right? So you could be looking uh, more specifically at uh, fields like phone number or whatever and make sure that they meet a certain format. Right. And then and then rather than you just pushing that into the Kinesis stream or into SQS or EventBridge or whatever you're using now, uh, you know, to verify that before, uh, you know, just do some even basic checks on it before you, you start flooding those downstream systems. Um, yeah, I think I think that's a really, really smart point. Um, so, so what else? What else do you see developers struggling with? Because uh, you know, we now have this thing where, like you said, our production systems uh, aren't running in traditional sandboxes anymore, uh, and, and a lot of the burden of security is now on us as developers to make sure that our applications are secure. So, so, so what are the, the things that you see developers struggling with? Yeah, so I mean, I think the number one thing we see developers struggling with is IAM roles and permissions. Uh, this is something that developers have recently inherited. Uh, I wrote last year about a company we had talked with um, and are working with where the developers all got together and said they were going to quit unless the security team gave them ownership of IAM roles. And uh, the developers made an interesting point, which was we can't do our jobs if we have to go to security every time we change an IAM role because we're now talking about IAM that governs you know 5,000 API calls we could make uh, you know in a world where we're, we're just expected to move really rapidly. We have to own that. Uh, and I think that makes a lot of sense because developers aren't necessarily equipped to make those decisions. And when you look at you know how developers work and they say, okay, yeah, I'm reading from a database, so I'm going to have to put Dynamo something there. I don't know, is that query or scan or both? 
let's just throw a wild card at it because that's the safest thing to do. Um, and then which resource? I mean, the table name depends on whether I'm in staging or production. So let's just put a wild card on resource because uh, that's the thing that's going to make sure I don't break, right? And to a large degree, I understand developers. It's the same reason why the second most common configuration for the duration of a Lambda function is the maximum, the first one being the default, right? Because if I'm going to change it, I'm going to change it to the maximum. That way, I don't have to worry about a timeout. That's great. And so I think the same way we see people struggling to deal with security configuration in a way that really you know, meets least privilege and, and minimizing risk. I'm not sure I blame them. I mean, as a developer, I also, I want to move rapidly and I want to, I want to get things done quickly. And I'm now being, you know, pushed even ever harder to write code faster, deploy code faster, less testing, more automation, more deployment. So that's the thing where I think uh, you know, people struggle the most with. And it has a huge impact, right? I mean, negative and positive. As I said earlier, properly configured IAM roles on lots of little Lambda functions will give you a tremendous amount of security joy. It will melt away huge swaths of your attack surface. Uh, and then at the same time, when you discover that your entire account is using a single role, uh, by the way, sometimes because security people demanded that they control that one role and it's got IAM wildcard, Cognito wildcard, Dynamo wildcard, S3 wildcard on it. Uh, that's going to put you at a huge amount of risk. So I think that's the place where we're saying, hey, developers, go do this, but we're not empowering them to make a, an easy, good decision. And as security people, we don't necessarily even know what the right decision is. And that's a real, that's a real struggle. Yeah, and and I think on on uh, this idea of star permissions too, uh, and, and I and I don't know if it's just an education thing, uh, but but it almost seems like uh, it's sort of uh, becoming a joke. Like everybody's like, don't use stars, but but obviously I I, I totally agree with that. Um, but but when you when you do use star permissions. Uh, what are the risks of doing that? Because again, if if you were running, let's say, let's say you're running a uh, an EC2 instance, um, whatever permission that EC2 instance has, which is which is probably a lot because it has to interact with a bunch of different services uh, and connect to the databases and do all these other things. Um, plus, it probably has its own role, um, you know, that has access to different parts of the network. Um, you know, why why is it why is that different than opening up permissions on say uh, a Lambda function? Sure. So fundamentally, obviously, it's not really different. And a star here and a star there are equally bad. Uh, and I've seen organizations that have, you know, policies in place to prevent stars from being deployed. And that's all great. Uh, at, at the same time, we need to recognize that least privilege is always important. But if you asked me uh, whether I would spend, you know, 20%, 30 40% of my security effort on getting to least privilege on my EC2 roles, I'd probably say, no, I want to spend those people on other things. Because at the end of the day, those EC2s are still going to have pretty big roles. So I would take a quick stab at, you know, carving out stupidity from those roles. And I'd probably accept the fact that having extra privileges there is probably not terrible compared to what I could use those other people to do, configuring security groups or doing audits or, you know, configuring my WAF. But when you go to a Lambda function, which probably does one thing, accesses the same resources every time, probably just reads from that one table and writes to the other table, the difference between star and list tags is incredible, right? You know, I, I, we, we've seen functions that literally only need to list the tags on uh, resources and they get a star because you know nobody wanted to figure out what the right uh, permission was for list tags, which by the way is list tags. So it's not that hard to figure out in this case. Uh, but that star means that that function can not only list tags on say IAM or you know on, a, on an EC2 instance, let's say, but it can delete it or create it or spin 10 up or spin a thousand up, right? And so th that's... In the world where this function literally needed to do one or two things and you gave it everything, that's really challenging. The other thing to remember is wildcards are not categorized by risk, right? So it's not like someone said, hey, there's 
really risky star and a little bit risky star and pretty benign star and totally benign star. And you could just say, I just want totally benign star, right? There's a little bit of read and write stuff you could do, but for the most part, a star somewhere gives you access to something really benign along with tremendous risk. And so you really have to be mindful about that. And again, yes, you should be mindful about that in EC2 as well. And you shouldn't use stars in EC2 as well, but your mileage will vary. And when you do it on small resources like Lambda functions or Fargate containers, it's going to really, really do a lot more good for you. Yeah, and it, and especially uh, the Lambda function, right? Because uh, they're ephemeral and, and and they can be used over and over again. Um, so if there's an exploit there, that's, that's sometimes... Uh, hard to see what somebody may have done to exploit it, um, you know. And if you give uh, if you give it a star permission, and like you said, I, I mean, DynamoDB is the example I like to use. Um, you know, if you give DynamoDB star permissions, uh, people are like, oh, I, I can get items, I can write items, and oh, I, I can even delete items. Um, but no, you can delete tables. Yeah. Um, you know, you can create new tables, and you can change provisioning capacity. Um, you know, there's just a lot of things that you can do. Uh, and so IAM is is just so incredibly powerful. Um, but again, th- those stars just make it uh, a little bit dangerous. And, and I'm not I'm not trying to scare people, uh, but it's just one of those things where it's like if you could tell anybody, um, you know, the one thing uh, the one thing that's probably the most important security piece that you have full control over uh, is IAM permission. So so learn them and and use them correctly. Um, uh, all right. So, so what about things like public buckets? Yeah. Are, uh, are are people still doing that? Because you know, S three now makes them private by default. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that we see around the world is that uh, stupidity doesn't go away that quickly. Um, and you know, part of this is uh, some things are just easy to do wrong. And, and I think one of the things that we you know we focus a lot on in security is the best security solutions are the ones that make the easiest thing the right thing. That's not always so easy to set up. Maybe sometimes impossible. But if you could make the easiest thing to do, the right thing, that, that'll be great. And to a large degree, the cloud providers have done better recently by trying to make some of the defaults better, making the process of making a bucket public harder to do, more friction, you know, again, as we mentioned before, that's great. Yeah, you know, it's, it's easier in the cloud to often configure things. And it's not just public buckets, it's API gateways. It, it can be, you know, DynamoDB or App, AppSync resources that can more, you know, more easily be set up to be visible from the outside world. So, so that's something that people have to be mindful of. But I think the most important lesson about public buckets is just because you remember this was a problem five years ago does not mean that problem has gone away. And I think in some cases, it's, you know, we, we talked, we talk a lot about, you know, other, other problems that are, there's a large resurgence in like SQL injection or things like that. There are some interesting reasons why what I call millennial stupidity is back, you know, things that we did 15 and 20 years ago. And we thought we eradicated, you know, the, the malaria of coding is, is SQL injection. And I think we thought it was all done, and now we're discovering. No, it's 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 back. It's back with a vengeance. Maybe because we're writing in languages like JavaScript and and, and Python more than we're writing in languages like uh, C sharp and C plus uh, plus. But also because we're we're demanding people to deliver things faster, and the fastest thing you can do is concatenate strings. And so you know that that's going to be the quickest way to your database. And we're we're not focusing enough on it. do it slower, but do it you know secure. And, and we're making that harder. The hardest thing to do in those languages is to write some complex query that's going to you know protect you from SQL injection, the easiest thing to do is concatenate strings. That's obviously a, a, a software challenge. So I think a lot of those things, they're not going away so quickly. We need to get better about them. We need to detect them. We need to have a process. I mean, part of the problem with public buckets, for example, is sure, I've got public buckets. Um, you know, they're part of my web app or they're part of my single page, uh, you know, application or something, and they should be public. How do I make sure the ones that are public are the only ones that should be public and nothing else is public? And I think a lot of that has to do with hygiene and posture. You can automate a lot of that, but you also have to just be diligent and mindful about a lot of that. 
Right, right. And I and I think that the mistakes that people make on a regular basis are, are probably the ones that, like you said, that we thought we solved 15 years ago with things like WAFs. Uh, and and honestly, no nobody ever taught me about SQL injection. I actually learned it the hard way uh, very early on in my career. So uh, I like the term stupidity because people still tend to do some pretty stupid things like check credentials into GitHub. Um, you know, but but I but I I think a lot of it is probably just ignorance and inexperience as well. Uh, you know, for example, there, there's there's been a recent movement away from using environment variables uh, to store secrets and lambda functions, and I, I think things like this are all mm-hmm. smart things. Um, you know, and that we should be doing this to minimize risks. Um, but there are still plenty of posts, uh, probably even some of my older ones. Um, you know, that say that's okay. Um, you know, so you mentioned this idea of hygiene and posture, and I think that uh, I think that probably brings us to this idea of mitigation. Maybe um, you know, so we have tools. Uh, there are tools out there that we can use um, that can help us mitigate some of these things. Um, you know, so what are your thoughts on how we do this? Can we can we just put tools in place to try to block some of this stuff and save developers from themselves? Yeah. So my my, my number one uh, cliche would be let's focus less on mitigation and more on prevention. Uh, and I, I know that's you know. That's super cliche in security. But I think here, one of the things that we see a lot is that you get a lot more mileage out of trying to make sure that the things you're deploying are deployed with least risk than you do at trying to chase after attacks. And again, that's not to say we don't need to do both. We will forever need to do both. No no amount of proper configuration and hygiene is going to prevent every type of injection attack or cross-site scripting attack or whatever it is on, on our infrastructure, right? You know, we, we need to mitigate all those things. But in cloud applications and particularly in serverless cloud applications, the value of hygiene and posture is much greater than it was in the past. You know, whether it's the things we talked about earlier, like just leaving around old stuff that can put you at risk, but you don't need, or it's getting IAM roles configured properly, or it's things like setting timeouts to, to their minimum threshold if you can. All those things are going to give you a tremendous amount of value in making it hard for attackers to do what they want to do in your on your system before you even started looking for SQL injection, right? You still need to look for SQL injection. We still need to run the tools that we're going to run. But before we get there, before you start worrying about blocking and, and, and mitigating kind of runtime attacks, spend a significant amount of energy on what do I have? Where is it? Do I need it? Is it configured in a way that gives me the least risk? Have I isolated the things I can isolate? Uh, am I doing all that continually? That, that, that would be my number one focus. That, that sounds like a lot of work, though. Well, yeah. I mean, that's why we get employed, right? Security people need to get paid. <laughs> yeah. So, so maybe this is a good segue into this question. Um, so whose job is this, right? So if the application developer is now the one fighting for IAM roles, uh, they want to control. Uh, they want control over these IAM roles, uh, and, you know, and you get different types of events coming in that could have SQL injection. Where again, good, you know, just good coding practices, um, you know, we know takes care of some of those things. Um, but then things like configuring what the timeout should be—that's um, on the developer now. Things like uh, how many RCUs and WCUs do we need for DynamoDB, or how many Kinesis shards do we need? Uh, you know, a, a lot of those decisions now fall on developers. So. So whose job is this? And, and maybe it changes with different organizations, but uh, is it dev? Is it DevOps? Is it, uh, is it AppSec? Is it ops? Do we need SREs to come in? I mean, who owns this now? Yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways, it's all of the above. And I, I know we've, we've said that for a lot of years. And I think the difference is, to, your, to your, you know, your points you made in the question, there's just a lot of stuff that those people in those layers own now that they need to be responsible for. Now, I, I'm a big fan of the idea that security owns overall responsible for security. And, and if you don't have a security organization in your business, then you're, you're going to find out sooner or later that that was a mistake. You need somebody whose job it is to care, right? But that person can no longer imagine they can solve the problem on their own. 
You know, I think we we were able to imagine for a while that we could throw up a WAF in front of our application and then feel good about ourselves. I think we're recognizing that's not really going to be enough. And so, yeah, we need developers to be empowered mainly to do the right thing in the easiest possible way. Uh, we need DevOps to help us automate the process of making sure those things happen. So kind of a, a trust and verify model. Sure, you own IAM. Sure, you go ahead. But at the same time, there's stuff in the pipeline that's going to make sure that if you go too far left or right, uh, there's guardrails in, you know, in place to help uh, put you back on track. Uh, then security needs to know that even though they put some of that stuff in the DevOps pipeline, and that's supposed to give them a lot of uh, good hygiene and posture, stuff will still make it into the cloud in a way that's not ideal, whether it's because it looked okay when it was deployed and then later on we discovered it had a third-party vulnerability we didn't know about, or because it was grandfathered in, it got some waiver, it bypassed something, it's been there, et cetera. We still need to worry about, okay, what's actually happening at runtime? Uh, can we know where our risk is and can we go deal with that? And can we still, yeah, look for SQL injection, look for code injection, all those things still have to happen just in a way that lives it well in a serverless application, scales with a serverless application, doesn't get in the way of a serverless application. So yeah, we need to layer all those things on, empower everybody to own their layer and make sure somebody else is responsible for verifying everybody else's job. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, a good way to approach it. Uh, so, so let's talk about tools just for a minute. And, and I know there are a bunch of them out there. Uh, Protego obviously is one of the security tools. Uh, so what does Protego do? How does it mitigate different parts of this? Sure. So first, let me mention that there are obviously lots of tools out there. There are a bunch of tools that you absolutely should be using uh, that come from the cloud providers. So Azure and AWS and Google all have uh, very robust suites of security tools that are available to you if you're in the cloud, and you definitely should be taking advantage of those tools. They're they're going to give you uh, they're going to help a lot in a lot of the areas that you're in. And so you know, in AWS world, uh, you you should be looking at using things like WAF and Shield in places that uh, it makes sense. Uh, you should be looking at using CloudTrail for auditing certain things, and Guard Duty will give you some visibility to anomalies and certain types of parts of your account. And th those things are all really great. Uh, where we come in is we really come in trying to bridge the gap between uh, security and dev and infrastructure and code. And so we're kind of saying, okay, in a world where the key asset you deploy is code and API, and where you're going to put security around code and API, not at the infrastructure or operating system level, uh, how, do, how can we come in and try to drive security in a way that's meaningful, where we can say, okay, developers can do what they want to do. Security people can have their policies. Security people can know that they're driving towards least privilege and optimal security configuration and runtime policy without having to close their eyes blindly, uh, you know, hope, just th throw a WAF in front and not configure it. Uh, I think the single hardest problem to solve in the AppSec world is how do I configure my WAF? And there are usually, you know, three answers. One is, yeah, don't bother. It's not going to work. Uh, just run it in kind of DDoS and basic, you know, uh, attack mode. Uh, the second is, yeah, put a lot of people on it, have them constantly evaluate what the application does and try to get the WAF con continuously configured. And obviously that gets more and more challenging as the application changes more and more rapidly. And the third is kind of these learning mode WAFs that exist where it's, you know, let me learn the application, figure out the right configuration. Uh, and the challenge there in serverless and cloud native is things don't run statically for long enough for that to work. You know, by the time three or four weeks have, you know, have gone by and you've, you know, learned what the APIs should be doing and not doing, those functions have been redeployed seven, eight, 10, 12 times, changing their functionality. So you kind of have to keep continually trying to relearn before you can block anything. So to a large degree, what Pratigo is focused on is on the one hand, automating least privilege, automating risk mitigation, and automating is key. You know, we talked earlier about how much work it is. You mentioned that, right? And it's, it's true, it's a lot of work, but really the way to deal with security in the modern world is to automate 99% of the workload. 
set up the right policies, set up the right tools, set up the right processes, and let those do most of what your work, your job is. And you spend all of your incredibly taxed time trying to deal with the 1% of things you haven't figured out how to automate yet. And so we really try to automate the process of IAM role, IAM role generation, vulnerability scanning, uh, um, looking for you know keys in the code and all sorts of other things that people are, are doing more and more. But mostly I'm trying to make sure that before it hits the cloud, it's configured optimally. After it hits the cloud, we continue to monitor it and make sure it's configured properly. And then the second half of what we focus on is what is runtime application security in a serverless world in a way that takes advantage of serverless, that scales with serverless. You know, we really tried not to build a WEF for a function. I think that's the easiest cliche to fall into. And it's not to say that part of our solution is not a WEF for a function. So I'm kind of contradicting myself, but it's really more to us about focusing on, hey, what is, what is the best way to get security? And so, yeah, part of securing an application in serverless is securing each function. And part of securing each function is making sure the inputs and outputs you know, are validated and make, and make sense. But a big part of it is really focusing on application behavior. And that's really where we're very powerful. Because one of the things we can really do is we can build kind of, I call it layer eight micro-segmentation. It's micro-segmentation at the level of API calls, process creation, interaction with third-party resources, things like that, where we can automate the process of figuring out by understanding what the code does, what the right configuration is. So we can say, we can, really automatically build the proper micro-segmentation around each function in your application simply by having an algorithm understand what the code wants to be able to do, understanding what the code's doing at runtime and saying, okay, I, I can build a whitelist for every one of those behaviors and I can literally lock the function in a cage that says you can do exactly what you need to do, not a drop more, not a drop less. And then above and beyond that, we let security come in and say, you know what? I don't care what a developer wrote. I don't want anybody to be saying I am create user, I am delete role. Those are things that need special exceptions from me. So I want to I want to apply a, a policy above that. So particularly lets you kind of automate all that, build your policies, deploy them, and really kind of sleep at night for the most part. Awesome. All right. Well, listen, Hillel, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, if people want to find out more about you and Protego, how do they do that? Yeah, so uh, a bunch of places. Obviously, you can go to our website, and there's quite a bit of information about what we do and, and how we do it. And uh, you know, you know, you can see a demo. You can actually sign up to use the product. You just you know, click a bunch of clicks. You can start playing with the product and, and see what it does in your environment. Uh, I try to uh, post uh, on, on Twitter both at at uh, HSolo and at Protego Labs, um, and as well as uh, you know, on, on LinkedIn, uh, we've got a blog on Protego uh, on the Protego website that you can take a look at. We try to really. Uh, uh, impart our findings and our wisdom, both from security and perspective and a, and a serverless perspective, uh, and, and just, you know, try to keep keep people interested. We've got a podcast, which you're going to reciprocate uh, and, and come on uh, real soon. Of course. Where we try to focus on uh, some of the things that are new with the security angle uh, in the serverless world and in the cloud native world. So uh, there's a link on our website to that as well. And I think uh, hopefully that'll be interesting for people as well. I mean, I see the ecosystem uh, growing and I see people, more and more people interested. I think that's, it's reflective of the fact that people are figuring out how to use this stuff uh, to their benefit and hopefully how to do security as well there. Right. And I, and I think the education piece of it is huge. Uh, and the more content we can put out there um, that hopefully gets people thinking about this stuff is, is great. So, all right, awesome. Uh, I will get all that into the show notes. Thank you again. Really appreciate it, Jeremy. Thanks for the opportunity. See you soon. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Hillel Solo for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 11. 
For more serverless chats, be sure to subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.